everybody. Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing on this Cyber Monday? Yes. It's beautiful and sunny out there. Did you any, do any cyber shopping today, Patty? Yes, I did. Were they Christmas gifts? Yes, it was. For? My sister, Joni. Okay, yeah. very good. But don't anybody tell her. No. Yes, okay, yeah. very good. Yeah, QVC has a great today's special of a of a uh, cuddle dud. Not cuddle duds. Yeah, cuddle duds? No. It had something with dreams in it. Barefoot dreams. Barefoot dreams um, throw blanket. It's really beautiful. I was gifted one a few years ago, and when I saw it today, I thought, oh, that would be nice for Joni. One of her gifts. That's right. Yeah. That's right. When did gift become a verb? Nobody ever, for my whole life, nobody ever said, I gifted you this. They would just say, I gave you this. I know. Or she gave, I wonder when did that happen? I don't know. Was it a Seinfeld episode? It could be. Could be. A so many lot. things. You find their origin in it's a Seinfeld, Seinfeld episode. That's very true. It's it is, true. actually. Well, you know, maybe because, see, they started the whole thing about re-gifting. 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 Yes, maybe that's where. Yes. I don't know, but now it's everywhere. This is, gift has now become a verb. Yep. So wild. And so the language changes. It does. Leaving old people like me in the dust. I did Cyber Monday shopping. Did you? Oh, yeah. Bought exciting stuff like coffee K-cups and tea K-cups. Oh, yeah. It was a thrill. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. 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 Ooh. Super duper. Ooh. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so there we go. So I think we're... I think we're good. I, I, I did get a new iPad over the weekend. You did? Yes. And you're using it today for the yes, first time? Yes, larger. It's like 12.9 inches, and it's not the most easily handle, handled thing, but I wanted more real estate, yeah, larger font. Show everybody it. It's Larger it's font, more real estate. So it's pretty big. It's, it's big... about the size of, like, well, it is the size of a 13-inch macbook but i'm trying to get more real estate increase the size of the font just trying to cope with everything going on with me so there we go yeah so anyway very good advent starts sunday it does it does and we're now in the numbers things are well they're not quite happening yet but we have a couple of real interesting sections lay, lay ahead and then we have some more kind of boring stuff and then they'll set march and when they begin the march, we're going to find one of the Bible passages that almost everybody knows, but I bet very few people know that it comes from the book of Numbers. Wow. Yeah. That'll yeah. be interesting. It will be. That's a teaser. Yeah. Even hold it back for me. I will. I'm not no going to tell you. No matter how much I beg or plead. That's right. Yes. Yeah. You can hold back my dinner tonight, and I won't tell you. <laughs> shall we pray? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. Um, it's just wonderful that we have this this way and this opportunity to come together and to study your word. Um, that this time is important. It matters. It's so easy just to just to let the days go by in this big secular world and and not not really really realize what what is happening to us. So it's a blessing that we can sort of leave that world for a while and, and come here and study your word, um, even a book as unusual as the book of Numbers. And this too is sacred scripture from the five books of the Torah, in fact. And we're we're just grateful to, to be able to do it today. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Okay, well, Patty, scoot back around. Um, and the two of us are going to try not to cough today. Yeah, yeah, I, I am. I am dumbfounded. I don't know what to make of this. One good thing about COVID was that because you really didn't see people, you really didn't get sick. <laughs> That's the irony of it, right? It's a pandemic, but unless you got COVID, you were generally pretty well all the time because you never saw anybody. Yeah, so come offline again. I'm gonna. Am I? Yeah, I don't think so. Well, on my side, anyway. Okay. I'm... Well, people are signing in. That's so, so I think good. we're good. That's so good. It might just be our little connection home here. Yeah. Right? No, no, it's not my home connection, or I wouldn't be up online at all. I think we're good. Anyway, all I can do is press head. I mean, I can check if you really feel. Are you really not online? You sure? Scott, when I came back here, it said your session has ended. No, now I... I see you. I see you now. There you are. Yeah, you're good. You're good. It was whatever it was. was I think it was something like maybe maybe just your computer because I've now been live for 16 minutes. Woo! Woo Okay, so we're at Numbers chapter 5, verse 11. We're going to pick up right there. That's right where we ended last week. So this, my friends, is a pretty fascinating little section. The subtitle for it in my NIV study Bible is the test for an unfaithful wife. And in sort of cultural studies, what 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 we're going to find here is what is called an ordeal. An ordeal is typically the word used to describe a test of like whether somebody is guilty or innocent in older cultures. And... You know, I can remember as a boy learning about some of this, and it was always cast in the following way, that the person who was going to be tested to see whether they were guilty or innocent was tied up, hands and feet, maybe a rock tied around them, and then they were thrown into a pond. And if they floated, they were innocent. And if they sank, they were guilty. Now, even as a wee child... I realize that's ridiculous, right? Wow. That's ridiculous. Now, this is not that kind of ordeal. And you're going to see that in a patriarchal culture, such as these women lived in, 3,500 years ago. 3,500 years. I can't even, I can't even contemplate that. 3,500 years ago. How this... This section, this piece of the law, actually has value for the wives. So let's just plunge in. Chapter 5, verse 11. Then Yahweh said to Moses, quote, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful, unfaithful to him, so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband, and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. And if feelings of jealousy come over her husband, and he suspects his wife, and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure. You see, that covers all the bases. Pretty much does. She did something she shouldn't have. She was unfaithful to her husband. 
Or she wasn't unfaithful and her husband's just the jealous type. Right? And um, now, how would this ever come up? If he's not, if he has a, nobody's caught in the act, nobody's, no witnesses, how, to, how would this come up in the conversation? You think? This is an easier answer than you think, my friends. Or he just suspects her of it. Right? Ah, she yeah. turns up pregnant. Oh, well, that's a That's big a big one. That's, yeah. that's more yeah. than... Uh, yeah, she turns up pregnant. And if they've not had any relations. <clears throat> yeah, you might say, you know, I've been I've been in the fighting away in the wars for the last umpty up. Which reminds you a little bit of what story? David and Bathsheba. You got it, Patty. You know your Bible. Okay, so if you take all of these conditions in 11 and 12 and 13, then he is to take her to his his wife to the priest because it's the priest who is going to run this test, as it were. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah, a weight, measure of weight, of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. Verse 16, so the priest shall bring her and have her stand before Yahweh. He's gonna, he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust, just dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. So what we have now is water with some dust in it. When I was a little boy, I'm sure I consumed a good bit of that. Anyway, verse 18, after the priest has had the woman stand before Yahweh, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering. Now, this loosening of her hair stuff is fascinating. Proper women in the ancient world wore their hair up. This is a practice that would endure all the way to Jesus' day. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, um, at large, it, a proper woman kept her hair up. A... a Wanton woman, to use an old word, would have let her hair down. I remember I was reading a, about this from, it was, a, uh, it was a feminist author of all things who wrote a lot about Bible and women. And she said, a woman in Rome who was walking down the street with her hair down, it would be seen as alluring and as... Um, out of place as a woman walking through Stonebriar Mall with her top down. Wow. Yeah. So, so the priest is going to loosen her hair, okay, and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the water, the bitter water now. Why is it bitter? Because it just has dust in it. That brings what? A curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sexual relations with you, and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband, and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, 
here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. So he's looking at her and he's saying, now, if you have been unfaithful to your husband, may Yahweh cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. So if she is not pregnant, her abdomen is supposed to swell when, if she's guilty when she drinks this bitter water. Or she's, if she is pregnant, she's supposed to miscarry if, when she drinks this bitter water. <coughs> and of course, this is the world in which, I mean, every, there, there were many miscarriages as there really still in, are still in our world today. But that's, that's the way this ordeal works right here. I think I have a slide on this. Um, one, two, three. Okay. So, we're at part D. Put the woman under oath and recite the curse to her. All right? I'm going to leave that up for a second. Then the woman is to say, Amen, so be it. Right? So, she is like a participant in this. And she says, Amen, so be it. Verse 23. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water. I don't know what he would write them with, but he's to write them onto a scroll, I guess rinse the thing off into the same cup of water that has dirt in it, dirt in it and now maybe what charcoal or <coughs> the remnants of some ink or something, I don't know, whatever, what was on the scroll. That's the cup that the priest is holding. He shall, verse 24, he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. The priest is to take from her hands the green offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, I'll explain that, wave it before the Lord and bring it to the altar. Now, this isn't like waving hello and goodbye. It isn't like the wave at football stadiums. We're not totally sure what Hebrew means here, but most scholars think it has to do with the priest maybe putting his hands under the woman's hands and moving the offering back and forth in the direction of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, to demonstrate that what was, what was hers is now being offered to God. You know, it's very ritualistic, right? This is a this is a defined ritual. The Hebrews had many, many rituals, and they were important. And I think something that's happened in our culture, which I think is not good, is that we as a culture have lost much of the sense that rituals matter. Rituals matter. Um, I can remember some months ago, Patty and I went to the memorial service, the funeral service of Greg Wood at the Anglican Church up the road on, on Legacy. Very liturgical, very formal. Each piece of it laid out in the way that funerals had been laid out for centuries. 
and I hadn't been to one like that in such a long time, but I have to tell you, I found, I found comfort in it. There was something about the rhythm and the liturgy and knowing that you were, you were, you were, you were doing something that had been done for a very long time before you came along. That was, <coughs> that was comforting. <coughs> Sorry. So, but this is obviously very carefully laid out. Here's the little um, cheat sheet again. Okay, so verse we're all the way down to F now. Take the grain offering from the woman's hands and offer a handful of it as a memorial offering. And then guess what? The woman drinks the water. So, verse 26. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is have to have the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and been in fa unfaithful to her husband, that, that's, those two things go together, obviously, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her. Her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry and she will become a curse. So, well, I mean, right there you have, if the woman needed another reason to remain faithful to her husband in this very patriarchal culture, well, this is one. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. So, wow. okay, what is the benefit here of a woman who is charged by her husband with adultery but is innocent. <coughs> what do you think, Patty? Well, nothing bad's going to happen to her. Yes, I mean, but well, she will have. Be, she's going to drink water that's got dirt in it, and well, apparently, I guess since supposedly this is God saying this to Moses, yes, that God's going to make it that she does not get sick. That's right. That's right. You know. Um, yeah, it sounds disgusting, but it, it sounds disgusting. And but you know, it's it's not like she's going to be bound up hand and foot with a rock tied around her, thrown out into a pond, and if she sinks, she's guilty. Exactly. Right. It's not like that. And I, I personally think that in this extraordinarily patriarchal culture, that none, no women I know would want to go live in. It offers the woman some protection from a jealous husband. Because there are people who are simply get eaten up with jealousy or envy, even though their spouse hasn't actually done anything. And this ritual gives such a wife some protection because then when she drinks the water and and her abdomen doesn't swell and she doesn't miscarry, which will presumably be the case, then she is, um, she's passed the test and her husband can't, you know, 
can't continue to make the charge against her. If the woman has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. Now, how this worked out in practice, I don't know. You know, I, I am a child of the 20th century, now the 21st. So, I don't know, I mean, if you drink water with dirt in it and whatever the stuff was that was on the scroll, is that really going to in, in any in harm people? I, I, I don't know. But I once I got over the shock of this thing, <laughs> I, I saw what several commentators pointed out about from the perspective of a faithful wife with a jealous husband this would be very helpful to her. So, <coughs> yes, it seems, it seems so rough, but it's kind of like if you go back to thinking when an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth was actually an improvement. Over it. You slap me, I cut off your I, head. Exactly. That, that maybe this, that this then would be, you know, before she could just stand there and scream her innocence all day long and she was going to be possibly dead anyway. Right, because stoned to death. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, and when Jesus in, in John 7 encounters the adulterous woman, what are the what's the crowd of men doing? Stoning her. They're picking up stones because yeah. they're preparing to stone her to death for adultery. Yep. And Jesus intervenes. You know, those without sin cast the first stone. So this this gets an innocent woman out of that might have gotten a few guilty women out of out of it too i don't know <coughs> i am so sorry i have done everything i can to take this cough but now i'm actually having to talk that's what gets it going i did okay yesterday did. when the dean was here but Okay, so verse 29. This then is the law of jealousy when a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married to her husband or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife. The priest is to have her stand before Yahweh and is to imply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. Or not sin. Now, if that line bothers you, you know the he the husband just gets off scot free after having all this jealous rage over an innocent wife. Well, you just got to get over that because this is the this is the man's world a hundred times over. Um, and that would be true to Jesus's day and long after. You just always got to remember. It just fascinates me. Fascinates me. Shocks me that we are really only a single century past American women having the right to vote. Yeah. Easy, but Can you imagine? There are people alive today who, when they were born and in their first years, American women did not have the right to vote. Wow. Wow. So start rolling back in time and um, the phrase it's a man's world which people throw around now they don't have 
any idea of what it was like back then. But like I always say, no woman would want to go back there. So any questions or things about that interesting little so piece of the law? So is this one of the many of the hundreds or thousands of laws that are part <coughs> of the law that people <coughs> would have to remember this? Or is this something that only the, um, the priests would have to be... Well, the question, I hear your question, Patty, and I don't know directly. Um, the question would be, how much was this practiced? Mm -hmm. Like, if we went forward into Jesus' day, I, 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 I don't know. There were things, things changed in the understanding and in the application of the law of Moses as you went forward from the times that the law was given all the way forward to Jesus's day, including long periods when they, when the law of Moses was forgotten in its entirety. Gosh. Remember, because King Josiah, the last good king of, of, of Judah, um, they were doing a temple construction redo project, capital project, and in the course of that, they found they found the law of Moses and they brought the prophetess Huldah in to say whether it was truly God's word or not. She said it was and King Josiah tore his garment because he knew that what that meant that they had found something that they had even forgotten they had. And I for one am like almost everybody I think that we tend to think all of this stuff is just on a long, unbroken line, right? They're given the law here, they live out the law, yada, all the way forward to Jesus' day. No, that's just, that's, that's just not it. So, anything else, Patty? Nope. Anything from anybody? No, sir. Okay, so I'm going to take one don't go anywhere. I'm going to take one one minute break. I'll be right back. We're back. And everybody is lucky they did not hear that coughing fit of yours. Oh, yeah. It was not pretty. Okay. So, now we're going to go on to Numbers chapter 6. I also found this little section right here pretty fascinating because you don't have to spend a lot of time in the Bible before you start to encounter this business of a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, a Nazarite, someone who doesn't cut their hair. Yes. The most famous one is who? Samson. You got it. That was quick, Patty. Yes. He's the most famous one. And right here in Numbers, we find the law 
Maybe John the Baptist too, right? Maybe John the Baptist. Um, maybe Samuel. It's not clear. Hannah says to God, I'm not going to cut his hair, but it, it's not clear that that he was being dedicated to God as a Nazarite. But you could find scholars on both sides of that, of that question. Uh, maybe John the Baptist. Paul seems to have taken a Nazarite vow at least for a while um, because he talks about cutting his hair before going back to Jerusalem. But in any event, this is where, this is where it comes from. And there are two kinds of Nazarite vows. Some that last a lifetime, like Samson's. Some that are for a period of time. So you would, you would take on the vow of a Nazarite for a certain period of time, and then you'd be released from that vow, that time of service. And right in the first line, we see something that surprised me because I didn't know it would be there. Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman. All right. That surprises me. Why does it surprise me? Because it's such a patriarchal culture. The Naz... Um, but here, um, there could be a, uh, a man who becomes a Nazarite, or boy, a woman, or girl, and they want to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to Yahweh as a Nazarite. That's what it is. Um, the word means consecrated. To be consecrated is to be dedica dedicated to, to the service of God. Like we consecrate a building. We consecrated uh, Hasley Chapel. It's dedicated to, to, to God's service. So this Nazarite vow is about the consecration of a person to the service of the Lord. And here are some of the disciplines that go with it. They must not abstain from wine, and they must abstain, gosh, Scott, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink, no alcohol, and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not even drink grape juice or even eat grapes or raisins as long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Now, <clears throat> if we were all together, three hands would be going up asking me, well, what's the deal with that? Why not, why not raisins? And I would say, not going to take any chances. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I think the way to see this is that these are, everything done here is a set of disciplines that goes with the taking of the vow. 
There might have been other things. But these, the things here would set you apart. Grapes, grapevines, that's like at the heart of Israel. Right? There's lots of grapes. When we go to Israel, we go up to, to a winery up in the Golan Heights. Um, olives, grapes, it's all just a big part of, of, of Israel, of Canaan, the promised land. And so here, they're being set apart. They're going to very demonstrably not live like everyone else lives. Skipping not just fermented grapes, as in wine, which in the Old Testament, wine is a gift from God multiple times. It's described as a gift from God to his people. But also just not even raisins, grape seeds. They can't cook with grapeseed oil or whatever else it might be. And these are disciplines about how this life, that sets this life apart. And it is a little bit like rituals. I think rituals have an important place in the human life. Disciplines certainly have an important place in the human life. And I I feel like an old man talking about these things. I am an old man, but I feel like an old man talking about this when I say that I think learning to be disciplined is the value of that is is not appreciated as much as it once was. I saw a video recently, it's just seven or eight minutes long, on the uh, the, the sentinels, at the tomb of the unknown soldier and how they're selected, the life they lead. I could not do that myself. I know I couldn't do that. But they are the epitome of dedication and discipline to the smallest, to the smallest detail. Every single bit of, of their uniform 21 steps to one side of the tomb, 21 steps to the other, 21 seconds when they turn, 21 seconds in front of the tomb. Everything is exactly laid out and has to be done by men or women who are incredibly disciplined and can do that in shifts for days on end. It's a huge honor. Very few people have ever been um, uh, uh, guard at the un tomb of the unknown soldier because I think most people couldn't do it. Like I said, me included. But we're not through, so there's the, there's the great part, verse 5. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used to cut on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Um, ask me why? I don't know. But it sets them apart. So this is, of course, a key part of, of Samson's story because he is a Nazarite dedicated to God's service. His hair is like the power of God in him. And when he lets Delilah cut that hair, I guess, I guess she sneaks in and cuts it. I can't remember. Anyway, when it is cut, then he loses that power and can be overcome by the Philistines. So, okay. 
Wow. Verse 6, throughout the period of their dedication to Yahweh, the Nazarites must not go near a dead body. Just stay away. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonial unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head, as in their long hair. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to Yahweh. Death is... The way death is treated in the law of Moses, you see that it is the enemy. It, it makes, we could say, well, it's just a cessation of life in the body, but it makes, it, it, death can make a person ceremonial, ritually unclean. Because death is not God's intention for us, was not God's intention for us, is not God's intention now. God would like everyone to live in eternity with God. But we chose to rebel against God. And um, that's the story of chapter 3 in Genesis, and it's the story of humanity uh, ever since. And so death here, it's, uh, it's like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The, the person, there's not a Nazarite in that parable, but it's the same function. The, the, the priest has to walk by, the Levite walks by this injured man because they're afraid he's going to be dead. And if they touch him, he'll be, they'll have touched an unclean body and whoa. Nazarites were the same. Don't even go near a dead body, even if it's your own mother. You'll have to let somebody else do the work of tending to her. Verse 9, if someone dies suddenly in the Nazareth's, Nazarite's presence, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication, they must shave their head on the seventh day, the day of their cleansing. Then on the eighth day, they must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering, and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for the Nazarite because they sinned by being in the presence, in the mere presence of a dead body. Wow. You know, if you take the time to read the law, there are so many places where you see it being this constant reminder that God is holy and these people are not. And it's teaching them about the gulf between God and themselves, which is the teaching that I think people, many Christians in our world, could stand to be reminded of. God is not just a better version of ourselves. God is God. And we are grateful that through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled with God. But that doesn't mean that God is our, our buddy. Our buddy. God, God is holy. And God 
when we come to faith in Christ, God sees us as holy. We have been reconciled to God. But for so many of us, we are striving to actually act like and live like holy people, to be the holy people that God has already made us into. And we just can't forget that. Just can't forget that. How does an old adage go? You know, um, you know, God accepts us as we are, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't want us to stay as we are. What Paul is constantly on about, you know, I want to give you meat, but I have to give you milk. You're blown back and forth, back and forth, you, you, you believers. Kind of grow up. So, <clears throat> at the end of verse 11, that same day they are to consecrate their head again. They must rededicate themselves to Yahweh for the same period of dedication and must bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count because it became defiled during their period of dedication. So, this is another way <laughs> to try to keep the Nazarite away from the presence of dead people. Because if, let's say you signed in for a seven-year period, and in your presence, some unfortunate soul dropped dead when you're six years and nine months into that seven-year period. What does that mean for you? It means that your seven-year clock starts over. Yep. But you notice how it's all, all carefully laid out, things are thought about, what happens if somebody just sort of like, like like drops dead in my presence, God? Well, if somebody just sort of drops dead, turn to number six, verse nine. There we go. Well, it, you know, the weird thing about that, though, it makes it like death is an unnatural thing, where obviously it's not. So... I don't I don't understand that part. I don't understand, you know, I guess I'm not we'll never understand. Maybe that will be on a death card. Death is a natural thing only in a world marked by sin and brokenness. Right. Right? Right. But this Nazarite who happens to come upon a dead person had nothing to do with, you know, True. the sinning of this person or anything. We all else. sin. Yes. The Nazarite will die. We all die. Um, I don't know. For me, Patty, it makes it. It it makes it. Um, it makes it clear. And in lots of ways, lots of threads. That death is this, death is unnatural in that sense. Death is the enemy. Death is not how things should be. And um, because it's easy to see death as merely just part of the way the world works and it's how it's always has been, it's how it's always going to be, but that's not true. It wasn't God's intention and God is going to fix it. Okay. It's on and on. Yeah. Yes. And I see that. 
Josie said her NRSV study Bible has a footnote that the Hebrew word for unpruned vine is nazir. Because that, well, okay, so I actually spent a little time with this. Nazarite and Nazarene, Nazarite and Nazareth, are they connected? You'll find arguments about there, but, but I'm sort of with those that there's not enough connection. This Nazir that Josie has in her study Bible is better put with Nazareth, which means unpruned vine or branch or whatever. But the Knetzer word that is the word in the Hebrew here, I think it's like typically brought in English as K-N-E-T-Z-E-R, is, I think it means consecrated. Maybe I could be wrong, but I think it does. So most of the people I found who were willing to talk about this just said no. But it's been an argument that's gone on forever and will go on until Jesus comes back I think so. There we go. All right. But regardless of where you might come out of that argument, there is no reason to think that Jesus was a Nazarite. John the Baptist is a different story, you know, because he's clearly very different and very set apart. Um, she, Josie put that she thought that the cutting of the hair was like pruning it. Well... I mean, I could, I, I could see that, but <coughs> I'm still not sure that that word there in the study Bible, I, that's a Hebrew word I associate with more with Nazareth than I do with Nazarite, but okay. I don't know. I'm no expert in Hebrew, Josie, so. But if you Google, oh my gosh, you'll find all kinds of interesting things. That's a lot of what I do. <laughs> I find Google to actually be pretty helpful. Helpful if you find, you know, some some good sites to use. Okay, verse thirteen. Now this is the law of the Nazarite when the period of their dedication is over. They are to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. There they are to present their offering to Yahweh, a year old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and a basket of bread made with the finest flour and without yeast, thick loaves with olive oil mixed in and thin loaves brushed with olive oil. In other words, they bring with them a banquet. Okay? The priest, because remember there's basically... There's all these ways to talk about the offerings. There's basically two, two huge categories of offerings. There are burnt offerings. Those are offerings which are offered to God and go only to God. They're burned up, whatever. Then there are the fellowship offerings. Those are offerings which are offered to God, but then shared with everybody in this fellowship between God and his people. So... The priest is to present all these offerings before Yahweh and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to Yahweh together with its grain offering and drink offering, 
Then, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that symbolizes their dedication. They are to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. You ever smelt burnt hair? It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. You're right. So now, when I was... So, let's go back to the beginning. This could... A Nazarite could be a man or could be a woman. So, the woman, her hair grows out for, I don't know, however long she's got her period of dedication for. When it's over, she's got to shave all her hair off. (coughs) I would guess that's something most women wouldn't want to do, but that's what you have to do. Verse 19, after the Nazarite has shaved off the hair that symbolizes their dedication, the priest is to place in their hands a boiled shoulder of the ram and one thick loaf and one thin loaf from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave these before the Lord, more like a picking up and offering it to God kind of thing. You might have seen even in sometimes communion in a Catholic church, the the priests will take the elements and they'll turn around and they'll lift their hands and like offer them up to God. That's probably what we're in the neighborhood of here. The priest shall then wave these before Yahweh as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine and may need it. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows offerings to the Lord in accordance with their dedication in addition to whatever else they can afford. They must fulfill the vows they have made according to the law of the Nazarite. So you have this mechanism with a variety of practices and disciplines that a person would accept in order to be consecrated, dedicated to the Lord's service for a fixed period of time. In some cases, it seems to have been for a lifetime. But obviously, all of this is about a fixed period of time where it has a beginning and has an end. Pretty, yes. pretty wild. It is. I worked with a girl for a few years at Canon, whose church followed a lot of these principles, and she was not even able to trim off the the dead ends of her hair. For how long? Never. What do you mean, never? Well, for as long as she was a member of this church, she was not. How long did her hair grow? It was long. Like for her whole life, she would never cut her hair? I don't know if she ever did at some point, but what ends up happening, of course, your hair ends up starting to fray at the bottom. You get dead ends. I would see her once in a while with a scissor, just snipping ever so little. (coughs) But, um, yeah, she was not. She told me that her hair was her veil and that she could not cut it or trim it. And her little daughter's hair was also extremely long. 
Well, she dressed it dressed you know, and everything I, I, more like what I would call a Mennonite. Yes. Um, no makeup, very um, uh, sort of like homemade kind of clothes. Yes. And uh, very much like Little House on the Prairie. You know, and I do respect the way that different Christians across the globe choose to practice their yes. faith. I, I, I do think, though, we have to be careful not to imagine that that this that this law of Moses in all of its detail applies to us past Jesus these practices were dropped by the Christians they were dropped by the Christians because as the writer of Hebrews says you could not have a better priest than Jesus. You could not have a better sacrifice than Jesus. As Paul says, as the dean pointed out last night, that the law was like a, a guardian, a, a nanny, who was necessary, but had served its purpose. purpose. And so there are a lot of aspects of the law of Moses which taught these people here things that need to be taught. And if we need to be taught that... If we are going to dedicate ourselves to God's service, we need to take it seriously and in a disciplined way. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of some of the ordination practices. Maybe all of us Christians should think about in what ways is our life consecrated to God? How do we live differently than our unbelie unbelieving neighbors do? So those are all good, good questions. Okay, so now Lynn had yes. a question yeah. there, and she said, "What would they do during this period of time?" And so, what what would the Nazarites do who had made this vow to God? What would they're not priests, so what what would they what would they be doing with their time? That is a mighty fine question. Um. If we look at the story of Samson, we find Samson making one mistake out of another. But if we looked at the story of Samuel, who his mother said, we will not cut his hair. And it's not agreed upon about whether Samuel was striving, was in this Nazarite vow. But he, he gave his life to God as a judge and a prophet. So maybe it would vary from person to person and how they chose to live that life of dedication. Yes. Right? Yep. I mean, in the church today, we have many ways in which people can serve. Some people serve full-time. In other words, that's what they do. Um, don't have any other job. Other people serve part-time. All the jobs are necessary. All the jobs are important. I don't know. Good question. I wish I could be more help. Yes. You would imagine that the Nazarites, of course, stood out more uh, visually. No, that's, just, that's the point. Right? Yeah. With the hair. Yes. And the rest uh, of it. Yeah. Other people can, you know, take on different roles, you know, like in our day, that wouldn't be so obvious to folks. Well, I'll look around this week a little bit, see if I find anything more about it. But what I read preparing for today didn't really talk about what they did nine to five okay 
So, let's do this next little bit. And then we may stop a little bit early just to save my voice. Number 622. Here we go. Yahweh said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Remember, they're getting ready to make this big journey. So this is the blessing that they are to say to the Israelites as they're getting ready to commence this big journey. Say to them, quote, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Okay, I never knew that came from Numbers. The Book of Numbers, buried in Chapter 6 of the Book of Numbers. And, of course, we've all heard it in church. We've heard it sung. There are several musical settings of it that are quite well known. Um, I sang in church choirs for a long time, and there were a couple ones, and we would do it at the end of the service, like at the time of the benediction. Yes. Um, This word of blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face, I'll say it the way I know it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You might have heard it as the Lord make his countenance to yes, shine that's upon what you. I have heard. Yes. Countenance and face are just, a, just the same, same word. What. You know, what's important is this business of God's face because it's a symbol of reconciliation or with God. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God would come to walk with them in the evening. We know this because after they make the fateful decision to eat from the fruit, God comes to walk with them and can't find them. And he goes around wanting, Adam, where are you? Moses wants to see God at Mount Sinai. But God says, you cannot see my face and live because Moses is not holy. Moses is the child of, with a darkness in his heart as we all have that darkness in our hearts. And so God says, no, you're gonna, I'm going to pass by you and you can see me from behind, but you can't see my face. So then you go all, and there are some others, this being one, you go all the way forward to the end of the book of Revelation, and what does it say? We will all see God's face, which is just a beautiful way of saying that we will all be reconciled with God. We, Our relationship with God will be put right, and we will be renewed, and we will see God's face. doesn't mean God hasn't face like you and I have. It's just a beautifully poetic way of talking about um, us being in the right relationship with God. So verse 27, so they, God says, so they will put my name on the Israelites. They'll put my name on the Israelites. See, names in the Old Testament are not just labels. They carry power. That they, they, they mean, they mean relationship. They're the somebody gives you their name. They're giving you something material. Um, 
the best analogy I can come up with is in our world, if you gave somebody your social security number, right? It implies a degree of trust. They will put my name on the Israelites. In the book of Revelation, are you going to bear <coughs> the mark of the beast or the name of Christ? Excuse me. There you go. They will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. So, you know, make note of that place because as Patty said, I think most people, they've heard it. They've probably heard it sung in church, but they don't realize that it comes buried deep in this book of, of, of Numbers. So when we <coughs> come back next week, we're going to move pretty quickly through the upcoming several chapters because they're, it, they're, they're the offerings to the tabernacle and there's 12 tribes, so there's 12 offerings and they're very formulaic. The setting up of the lamps, the setting apart of the, of the Levites. Um, we'll probably slow down when we get to the Passover in chapter 9 because I think that's always important. And then things will begin to happen. The trumpets are going to blow and the people will begin to move out and um, we'll, we'll just see that this whole big camp of Israelites will begin making their way toward the promised land in chapter 10. And then in, so you tell me. So they're going to be making their way to the promised land in chapter 10. How long will it take them for, how long will it take for problems to arise? Patty. Oh, pretty quick. Chapter, if they, <coughs> if they leave in chapter 10, <coughs> excuse me. when do they start to have problems? Chapter 10. <laughs> maybe, maybe 11. Okay. We'll just say 11. Okay? Yes. Um, yeah, so we'll see. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So, friends, I'm sorry. I just don't have a strong voice today, but... You put up with me, and um, I appreciate I appreciate that. And we got to see where that beautiful blessing came from in the Book of we Numbers. That's that's that, that's worth a lot right there. I think to me, we did. Yep. it's wonderful. It's beautiful. So, alrighty, alrighty. So, friends, please uh, go to God in prayer with us as we close out today, and just pray that Scott does not come down as sick as I was. I still got my cough, but, you know, you just kind of barreling through it at this point. And don't you wish you were here. <laughs> don't you wish you were here. <laughs> anyway, um, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you today, God, so much for this beautiful day, the end of November. We thank you, God, for the beautiful sunshine that we had today. And we thank you, God, for this time to get together and once again get to study your word and just how how awesome, awesome God you are, how lucky we are that we get to do this without even a thought. Um, just, you know, the, our, our freedoms are, are just awesome. And uh, we thank you, God, for those new hostages that were released today, um, those folks who have been under somebody else's thumb for more than 50 days. We pray, God, in the coming days that more and more people will be rescued. 
and uh, many of the Americans, God, would also be rescued and that they would be back in time for these holidays with their family and um, be able to just uh, be able to worship you, God, to learn about you, to study about you, all with the freedoms, God, that you have blessed us with. We are just a very blessed nation. We truly are. Keep us healthy, God, and please keep us safe. Watch over us, God, and guide us. We pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment every day in our lives, Lord. Help us to make good decisions all the time. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Adios. Bye, friends. Bye, friends.